All right, you festive worshipers, are you ready to get into the Word this morning? Give me an amen today. All right, one of my fine leaders, our fine leaders, and good friend reminded me as I was coming on, and he was coming off, Pastor, you've only got one shot today. Make sure you get it right. <laughs> I tease with him a lot of times during the second service, and I'll tell him, let's make sure we get it right this time. Amen. Only got one shot today, but we're locked and loaded. Pardon the pun. Did y'all get that? Locked and loaded. Amen. <laughs> and we're ready to go. My Bible is open to Matthew chapter 2. We're continuing on this Christmas Day our series in the Gospel of Matthew, the first four chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Then Jesus came. That's a statement right out of the first four chapters as Jesus burst forth on the scene. We're looking at his early life, his birth, his early life, and his early ministry as recounted by Matthew in this first gospel. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you in a pew rack, and our text can be found on page 760. We invite you to join us there. Before we get started, let's go before the Lord and ask him to bless our time in his eternal word. Father, we're grateful. These songs just transport us back in time. And they're so sweet, and they're so precious, and we're just reminded uh, today of how meaningful this time of the year is to all of us, and not just from a festive standpoint, but from a spiritual standpoint. Christmas means everything, and we thank you for sending your one and only Son on a very cruel mission, one that he fulfilled perfectly and without sin, and he did it for sinful people. We rejoice in that today as we're continuing to be astounded by it, and we pray that you'll now go before us by your Spirit. Speak to us through your Word, this very familiar text. Give us some spiritual things that we can learn in order to ensure that our response to Jesus is always a wise response to Jesus. In his wonderful name we pray, amen and amen. <clears throat> Well, today we turn our attention to a very familiar story. It's a story that's mysterious and uh, full of misunderstanding, truthfully. And that is, of course, the Christmas account of the wise men. The wise men, sometimes known as magi, uh, are found only in the Gospel of Matthew. You don't read about them in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, in Mark's gospel, there's nary a word about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't read about them in Luke's gospel, as voluminous as Luke's gospel seems to be concerning uh, the events of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a word about these wise men. And how ironic that the only place we find them is, in fact, in Matthew's gospel. Matthew, of course, is a Jewish writer who is writing fundamentally to Jewish people concerning what they needed to know about right standing with God through Jesus Christ. And how ironic at the very beginning of this most Jewish gospel from a most Jewish author uh, do we find this story of a group of sophisticated pagan Gentiles as the very first people who come to the Lord Jesus Christ in an act of faith. Can I just say at the very beginning, this is the same Matthew who at the end of his gospel reminds the disciples of Christ to go and make disciples of 
all nations and how wonderfully reassuring at the beginning of his gospel. We're given a picture of that and that the first ones coming to Jesus after his birth in the story of his birth are a group of pagan Gentiles from a far away land. Let there be no doubt that the gospel is for everybody. Matthew begins the story here in Matthew chapter 2 in the first verse. Let's notice a few of these opening verses. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Let's stop there for a few moments and just realize that there's no question that these wise men are among the most mysterious players, if not the most mysterious players in all of the Christmas narratives of the Bible. There's far more that we don't know about them than what we do know about them. For example, we don't know their names. They're just anonymous men who are unnamed in the story. And truth be told, we really don't know how many of them that there were. We tend to land on the number three for two reasons. One, because there's an old hymn that talks about three kings from the Orient going to worship Jesus, right? Well, where did the hymn writer get the number three? Probably because there is a number three in the story, and it has to do with the gifts that they gave, right? So we tend to just assume that there was one wise man for each of the three gifts that they gave to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the text doesn't say that. We can be assured from a lot of stories of our youth that there were, in fact, three musketeers, and there were, in fact, three stooges, somebody say amen, and that there were, in fact, three blind mice. We know that without any uh, cause for error, but we don't know if there were three wise men <clears throat> or 33 wise men. All we know is that when they came into town, everybody, including the king, seems to know that they're there. Kind of reminds me of the westerns that you watch in the sleepy little towns, and all of a sudden, the, the cattle rustlers come riding into town, and there's a whole herd of them, and they're kicking up dust, and everybody stops, and they observe them, and they all end up going into the saloon. Well, these wise men don't go into a saloon, but I have a feeling that they probably had a very large retinue around them, and they all come in, and everybody stops, and everybody sees them. They obviously don't belong there in Jerusalem, a very Jewish city, and Everybody wants to know what they're there for. Those are the things that we kind of don't know about these wise men. What we do know is that Matthew tells us they're from the east. They are indeed oriental in the old sense of the word. They're probably from Babylon or from Persia. And they were most certainly not kings, even though the song says they are three kings. They are not kings. These were men who served kings in the court of kings. They tended to be associated with sorcery. They tended to be associated with astronomy and astrology, magical arts, hence the name magi, because they tended to read up on matters associated with magic and, and astronomy and the like. In fact, they were very much into studying the stars. Somehow religiously or magically, they believed that stars communicated in some way, which probably explains why God uses a star to draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, God's saying, okay, you boys are into it all that much. Let me just kind of come down to your level. 
And if you all love stars so much, let me just give you one that you can follow. And isn't it wonderful that God supernaturally arranges the night sky in order to draw these pagan men to a Savior whose name they did not know. And I say it was a star. We know it was some form of light, something star-like. I wouldn't get too caught up in what this was specifically. Sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees. You know what I mean? Some have suggested this was a convergence of planets. I think it was last year uh, when Jupiter aligned with Saturn, and you could actually see it uh, on a dark night here in the thriving metropolis of Cantonment. You could see, and it wasn't a blinding light, let me assure you that. It's better if you had a pair of binoculars, but they came right together, Saturn and Jupiter. And some said it was a supernatural convergence of the planets. I don't know about that. Others have suggested it was a comet. Have you ever seen a comet in the night sky? Judy and I did one time on a hot date in Nashville, Tennessee. We had a window seat at the Merchant's Restaurant <clears throat> down on Broadway on the second level. And Hale-Bopp Comet was flying through the sky, and I'd forgotten all about it. Until at one moment I looked out the window and I saw what I thought was an airplane and it was obviously wasn't an airplane and that comet was just moving slowly but surely across the night sky. We put everything on hold so we could watch that comet through that candlelit window. Oh, it was romantic. I've never forgotten. I'll never forget that as long as I live. How many times is that going to happen in your lifetime? To be sitting there, candlelit dinner, fine food, comet in the sky, and this hot date right across the table from you. Some have said it was a comet in the sky. I don't know about that. Some says a supernova of some kind. We don't know what it was. i tell you what I think it was. I think it was a God-caused supernatural light that cannot be explained in any other way, astronomically or in any other way according to science. I believe God caused it. Personally, I don't think anybody could see it but the wise men. Otherwise, everybody would have been flocking to it. I think it was visible only to them. I don't think it was there all the time. I think God put it there whenever it needed to be put there. And that's what drew these magi to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what made them truly wise men is that they were smart enough to follow that thing. That's what made them wise. They determined that they were going to follow that God-given light, even though they had no clue where it was going to ultimately take them. Now, obviously, God had given them more than a light in the sky because it's obvious they knew something about the person who lay behind the light. Because when they arrive at Jerusalem, they begin to ask this question. Did you notice it? Where is this one who has been born king of the Jews. Well, how did they know that? That's pretty specific knowledge that the light would not have communicated it to them. And apparently there wasn't a Jew in all of Jerusalem that had the foggiest idea what in the world they were talking about. But the Magi knew, the pagans knew. And so God may have given them some form of supernatural knowledge to go along with that supernatural light in the night sky. He may have given them some form of what theologians call special revelation to not only open their heart as the light obviously did, but to open their mind to the reality of who it was they were chasing. But not only that, remember, these were men from Babylon, Persia, 
they were most likely, I mean, they were very well-studied men, and they were men who were probably very familiar, frankly, with the Hebrew Scriptures. You remember back in the day, Israel was overcome by the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar. And then they were systematically carted off, many of them, back to where? Back to Babylon, where they obviously took their understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures back with them. And though for the longest time, there were Jews living in the area of Babylon, and their Hebrew Bible would have been maintained there, probably passed down, studied by people like these wise men. So I think they've probably been exposed to some Hebrew beliefs and scriptures and traditions for a number of years. So you put all that together, and between what God had told them potentially supernaturally and what they'd learned on their own, through their academic study of the Hebrew Bible, they knew what their purpose was. They weren't just out wandering in the dark following a totally unknown light. They were trying to find a child who was born a king, and they knew that, king of the Jews. And the size of their traveling party created a buzz all over the district of Bethlehem, so much so that it eventually reached the ears of the presiding ruler of the district of Palestine, who was a man named Herod, specifically Herod the Great. And what happens next forms the backdrop of some of the application that we want to draw out of this story this morning because what we see in this passage is a tale of three totally distinct responses to King Jesus, responses that still mark how people greet Jesus when his name is mentioned, even in the year 2022. For example, when first introduced to Jesus, some people respond with anger. Some people greet Jesus when they hear his name with anxiety, hostility, even downright anger. Verse 3 indicates that when Herod, the king, heard this, he was what? Say it out loud. He was <clears throat> troubled. Not only him, but all Jerusalem with him. And that's not really surprising. Herod was paranoid. He was an old man by this time, and he'd seen a lot of violence. There were probably a number of times when people tried to take his life, and he'd become paranoid, as a lot of the Caesars did, a lot of the major rulers. They all worried. I mean, all you got to do is read Shakespeare, and you understand that. These guys worried somebody was going to come into the night like Duncan and Macbeth, and just stabbed them right in the middle of their bedtime prayers. And the reality is Herod was the same way. He'd been on the throne for over 30 years there in Palestine, and the Roman Senate had granted him a specific title. Anybody know what it was? Herod was the king of the Jews. Not because he was Jewish, he was not. He was Arab. But because the district over which he presided was populated fundamentally by what group of people? Jews. And so he took on this titular aura as being the king of the Jews. And now all of a sudden, these wise men from the east come in and say, where is the one who's been born? Say it out loud, please. King of the Jews. And that sends him into a royal conniption. And this is a man who didn't care who it was. He had his wife murdered. He had three of his sons murdered because he was afraid of them. He was fearful of what they would mean to the length of his reign. And so this guy's liable to do anything, and upon hearing the news of this potential rival, this 
rival king of the Jews, the first response of the very paranoid king is to find him and get him all the way out of the way. Remove him as a threat. Look with me at verse number seven. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring word to me. Smile, twinkle in the gold tooth, that I may come and worship him. Don't believe it for a minute. Worshiping the young king was the last thing the old king wanted to do. Not only was he nervous, in fact, we're told here all of Jerusalem was troubled with it, not because uh, they were particularly threatened by the birth of this child out in a cave stable, but because they were probably aware that the king was upset about it. And because he was upset, they got upset because they knew if they were on the receiving end of one of his tirades, it was not going to be a pleasant experience, kind of like kids in the house when mom or dad get irritated, you know, and if you've got a father or a mother that are temperamental when they go off and when the black dog covers them up, you just go running for the hills, amen. Go to your room, go outside, get out of the house because they're getting ready to rant and I don't want to hear it. Well, that's the way the city of Jerusalem was. And so they were all troubled. They were anxious because Herod was angry. And you know, even today, some of you know people like that, don't you, when the name Jesus is mentioned. Just bring his name up at a Christmas party. Bring his name up at an office party. Bring his name up at school, at a gathering, a civic event, or at the ballpark. Just bring up the name Jesus. And it's almost guaranteed somebody's going to be troubled by it. Somebody's going to be anxious about it. Somebody's going to start wiggling in their seat and wanting to get up and go get another bowl of or a, a glass of eggnog or uh, sip on some punch to get away from the conversation because the thought of Jesus angers them in their spirit. And it's not hard to understand why. Jesus, for a lot of people, means loss of freedom. It means a loss of autonomy. It means that Jesus becomes the one who calls the shots in life, and who wants that? And that's why most people turn away from Jesus when his name is mentioned, not because they don't want eternal life. I mean, just say, hey, would you like to know how to find eternal life? People listen to you. Then when you tell them you've got to bend the knee and surrender your life to a man who is king of kings and lord of lords, who will control your life and do it for the better, now all of a sudden they're put off by that. Because, see, everybody wants a Savior, but very few people want a boss. Amen. And that's the problem. A boss means loss of control. A boss means loss of personal authority. It's why the rich young ruler turned away from Jesus, sad, and walked away when all he wanted was a conversation about how to inherit eternal life. And when Jesus taught him what he had to do to inherit eternal life, it was too costly. And he turned and left. It's why the Pharisees and the other religious leaders were provoked to anger by the Lord Jesus Christ because of who he claimed to be and what he alone claimed to do. And most people today are no different from that. When confronted with who Jesus is and what Jesus alone can do, many people become angry 
And their first response is do whatever they can do to put Jesus away. But then second, the story reminds us that some greet Jesus with what we might call apathy. Apathy, in other words, indifferent. Most people really aren't angry with Jesus, and most people really aren't hostile to Jesus. Most people just don't care about Jesus. They just don't give a whit about who he is and what he can do. Herod had been around Jewish people for most of his life, and obviously Herod knew very little, if anything, about biblical prophecy. In other words, what the Old Testament taught about the coming of this Savior King. Uh, we know uh, that that's true because the first thing that Herod does here is call in a bunch of experts, right, to interrogate them as to what in the world may be going on down the road about what these magi had reported to him when he'd had the opportunity to have a conversation with them. Look again at verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we've got a group of chief priests and, 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 and scribes who are summoned to the court of the king. The chief priests are the primary temple leaders. They probably would have been mostly Sadducees who were more political, really, than they were religious. The scribes were experts in the Jewish law. We might refer to them as religious lawyers. They were into the details about the nuts and bolts of Scripture. And some of those scribes may well have been the people we know as Pharisees, legalistic, very strict, keepers of the law, they were the go-to guys whenever it came to questions about how to properly interpret the law and keep the law in every respect. So when these men were asked by Herod, what's going on? What, what do these wise men from the east mean by asking these questions about the one born king of the Jews? It wasn't a very challenging question because let me tell you what most likely happened. These guys went back to the same passage we read about a half hour ago in our service. They went right back to the fifth chapter of the book of Micah and they quickly informed the king, oh, we, we, we know what's going on. This is not difficult at all. That, that, this is a passage in our scriptures that indicate that God is going to send a Messiah, an anointed one, a deliverer, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Micah's very clear about that. In Bethlehem where the Ephrathites live. At Bethlehem of Judea, it was only about five or six miles from where they were having this conversation. And what's amazing is that these scholars, these pagan Gentile scholars, knew all the details about the birth of their coming king, and the ones who were supposed to know about it were not moved by it in the least. The Gentiles have a heart tug that they're following. But the keepers of the law couldn't have been more casually apathetic about what was going on right in the midst. They did absolutely nothing about it. I mean, when confronted with the reality, Savior might actually be right down the road. That guy we've been looking for all these years. That, that's who they're looking for. But instead of saying, hey, let's go check it out, maybe there's something to it. They don't get excited 
They surely don't rejoice. They didn't ride hard to catch up with the Magi who by this time had left to investigate the possibility, see if there was anything to it. Man, they just didn't seem remotely interested in the least. They're like a lot of people who profess to know the truth. I mean, they gathered together from time to time and satisfied to show up and show off how much biblical knowledge that they've acquired, debate about it a little bit, quote a little scripture here, a little scripture there, and then turn and go home totally unchanged, totally unmoved, totally indifferent. Can I make a statement here this morning? Y'all still with me? Say amen. amen. Information without transformation always leads to stagnation. You can mark that down. And this is another example where religion can actually be an impediment to coming to a full knowledge of Jesus Christ. Religion isn't always a good thing. Religion, religious traditions, they can give you a false sense of confidence. They can blind you. Religion can make you feel like you're right with God when you're really not right with God at all. It can blind you to the true need of your life that you need more than anything else to repent of your sin and to receive the forgiveness that only God can give. These religious leaders served Herod, but they really weren't serving the Lord. They thought they were, but they weren't serving the Lord. They knew the truth in their minds, but the truth in their minds had not traveled the necessary 18 inches to change their hearts. They were like Nicodemus that we read about in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. They were religious, but lost. And churches are full of just the same kind of people, week in and week out, aren't they? People who are religious, doors open to the church, they're there. But they're like Nicodemus, never been born again. That's the greatest conversation in the New Testament. Nicodemus had this yearning in his heart, kind of like the wise man did. And he goes to Jesus by night. And he says, good teacher, we know that you are a man of God, a man come from God, for nobody could do these things that you're doing, and nobody could teach like you if he were not from God. And that's all the man got out of his mouth until Jesus cuts him off and said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And it's like, what? You know, where did that come from? Can you imagine how Nicodemus felt about that? Born again, who said anything about being born again? And yet Jesus went right to his heart, didn't he? He knew what he needed more than anything else. It was the same thing these religious leaders needed in the court of Herod. They were serving the king, but they were failing to serve the Lord because they were truly in their heart indifferent about the things of God, religious but lost. And this, brothers and sisters, is where the wise men show us the right way to Jesus. Some greet Jesus with anger, hostility. Others greet Jesus with apathy, indifference. But then others greet Jesus with what we might call adoration. Some are changed when they meet Jesus. And they learn to worship and adore Jesus for who he truly is, King of kings and 
Lord of Lords. The priests and the scribes had better and more accurate information than the Magi did. But these men were wise because they acted on what little bit they did know. They didn't have an encyclopedic knowledge about the plan of God like the religious establishment did, but what little bit they know led them to take a step toward Jesus Christ that literally changed their life. They followed the spiritual leading, not of their heads, but of their hearts. And it took them right to the source of salvation. Look with me, if you would, at verse number nine of our text. After listening to the king, they went on their way, the wise men did. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and what? Would you say it out loud? And worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I mean, these guys are just listening and following. They're hearing the Spirit, and they're not delaying. They're not dancing the two-step. They're not trying to weasel out of what they know God wants them to do. They're listening, hearing, and then immediately responding. I mean, right on cue, when that celestial light shines brightly once again, not far from them at all this time, it leads the wise men and all the people with them on this short journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. I've made that track many times. It's not that far at all. And then when they got there, that light was right over the house where the Joseph family was now living there in Bethlehem. By the way, can I just say, Jesus is not a baby here. They're not in the stable. He's not in the manger Jesus is probably somewhere, we really don't know how old the Lord was. He was probably somewhere between 12 and 18 months old. So by now, they've long since departed the musty confines of the cave, and they've moved into a more appropriate residence, a house, the Bible says, of some kind. I know what some of y'all are thinking. Wait a minute, you mean to tell me that the wise men weren't there at the manger on that so-called silent night when Jesus was born? Well, no. I'm sorry, don't write many emails. They weren't there. And having said that, let me encourage everybody here today, don't get all sanctified and go home and start ripping the wise men out of your nativity scenes this afternoon. Do not do it uh, unless God calls you to do it. I'm not gonna do it because I'll get shot if I tried to pull a stunt like that. At least chased out of the house with a broom, I'm pretty sure. So it's okay. I would encourage you, keep on providing room and board for these fine men. Uh, just make sure as you do that, that you're well acquainted with the biblical timetable that Matthew carefully presents to us. What's of greater importance uh, is that the response of these pagan Gentiles to Jesus is critical. 
the Bible says, this is one of the great lines of the Bible. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Or as some translations say it, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Man, that's just layer upon layer of superlatives. Just piling words right on top of another. And it's just one of the great statements of the Bible. I mean, we get it. All Matthew has to tell us, when they saw it, when they got there, they rejoiced. That's all we need to know. Just say they rejoiced. I mean, even more impressive would be for the statement to read, they rejoiced with joy. Okay, now we're talking. That's a superlative in and of itself. But we'd be wild if their devotion was such that Matthew said they rejoiced with great joy. Okay, that's now three piles of words. They rejoiced, they, they rejoiced with joy, they rejoiced with great joy. Can I just say it's over the top to say they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. That's the, close, uh, that's the closest the Bible ever comes to saying supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> right there, closest it ever comes. You know what that is? That's exuberant worship. That's exuberance. That's enthusiastic worship. And you know what? Y'all still with me say amen. That's what happens when you enter in the presence of Christ and you know it. See, this kind of worship puts an end to hands-in-the-pocket worship. Or even worse, this kind of worship. You can't rejoice with exceeding great joy in your hands in your pockets or your arms crossed on top of your Baptist belly. That doesn't happen. I mean, these guys were engaging in life-changing worship. And can I say, attitude is critical when it comes to worship. These were guys that just knew the barest of facts when it came to Jesus. And yet, when they walked in the house, they literally fell down in front of him. I mean, they fell on their faces when they gazed on the glory of this toddler king. They, they weren't distracted by anything. They didn't come in there talking about college football. They didn't call, come in there talking about their pipes freezing or the weather being so cold or could God have led us in the summertime for crying out loud? See, none of that stuff mattered. They weren't distracted by externals. They weren't talking about the shortcomings of the house. Do we have the right home? We were expecting a mansion, not a peasant's home. They, they weren't focused on the simplicity of the furnishings. Shaker style is the best these people can do for a king. They, they weren't focused on any of that. They, they were transfixed on the only thing that mattered, the presence of royalty. They're mag they, listen, these people were splendid people, these king, or these uh, magi were. They wore the best of garments. They were the best educated. We would describe them as magnificent people in their own right. But when they came into the presence of, of King Jesus, his magnificence totally rolled over their magnificence. And God help us walking into the house of God, bringing our own sense of magnificence and our own sense of significance in here. What you got for me today, brothers and sisters, making it all about us when the reality is it's not about our magnificence. It's about 
his magnificence. These men were changed because they knew they were in the presence of eternal greatness. And we know this by how they responded to Jesus. A, they fell flat on their faces in his presence. But then what happens next? They sacrifice for Jesus. In fact, you can make an argument they'd already made a personal sacrifice. They journeyed over a thousand miles to get to him. And they didn't ride a bullet train. And they didn't take a Southwest Airline jump flight. Presumably, they were either mounted on camels or horseback. I couldn't even imagine such. For a thousand miles, it took them weeks to arrive to Bethlehem of Judea. They respond with sacrifice. They gave themselves first to Christ, and then they gave their possessions to Christ. And you know, that's one of the great ways to judge the genuineness of your worship. How do I know my worship is genuine? You know your worship is genuine by the costliness of your sacrifice. And where there is no legitimate sacrifice, there is no legitimate worship. These men gave incredibly valuable gifts to the Joseph family. In a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to look at the passage of Scripture that comes next in Matthew where the Joseph family has to go to Egypt. Well, how in the world? And they were there for a good while. How'd they afford that? Probably from these gifts that were given to them. Valuable gifts that sustained them for a long period of time when they had to be on the run and flee for their lives. And some through the years have described these very familiar gifts, their famous gifts, for what they symbolized. The first gift was what? They gave them a gift of what? Gold. And I don't have to tell you what that is. Right? You watch Fox News, there's an ad for gold every 30 seconds. Invest in gold. Hedge against inflation. Very valuable. Was then, is now. Gold represents the royalty of Jesus Christ. It symbolizes that this man knew that, these men knew that Jesus was our king. Then they gave him secondly what? They gave him gold and then what's next? Frankincense. An incense used in the worship of God, very costly. And listen, you can still get it today. I know because we get the little vials of essential oils. Can I have an amen this morning? And one of those that Judy gets is frankincense. And I know it's valuable because I pay for it. It's like $500 a vial. I don't know, something like that. Cures what ails you. And that represents the deity of Christ. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our God. And then the third gift was what? Myrrh, perfume, used in anointings and burial preparations, kind of like you see happening to Jesus when the woman broke open that bottle of spikenard and poured it, and Jesus said, give her a break. She's anointing me for my burial. That may have contained myrrh because that's what it was used. And that references the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is our king, Jesus is our God, Jesus is our sacrifice. What I want you to notice, though, is that true worship is marked by a costly response to the king. We give to Jesus, not because we want Jesus to make us rich, but we give to Jesus to demonstrate that everything this world offers us pales in comparison to what he means to us. All the money in the world 
is nothing without Jesus. All the possessions, houses, lands in the world, nothing without Jesus. When we give and when we give sacrificially, we demonstrate our true treasure does not lie in the things of this world. Our true treasure lies in the possession of Christ and Christ alone. So brothers and sisters, on this Christmas day, the question is begged. How will you greet the newborn king? Some within the sound of my voice here in the room or watching online will hear the name Jesus and be presented that he is the only way to a relationship with God and they'll respond with hostility and with anger. Others will hear it and say, well, maybe later. I'll get around to that at some point, but thanks, not today. Some respond with anger. Some respond with indifference, apathy. But the Magi remind us that the wise men and women of this world are not just the ones who seek Jesus, but those who truly worship Jesus. They're a model for us today in teaching us the right response to Jesus is to learn to follow the Spirit as they did with your heart even more than with your head. And when you come into the very presence of Jesus to not only rejoice, but to rejoice with exceedingly great joy. May this be a model for us on this Christmas day and every day until one day we're face to face with him. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen. amen.